growing up and taking much of the content that was out there in the education through magazine articles, land management or deer management was food plots and feeders and minerals and um, pretty much that. There wasn't a whole lot or fruit trees. But when you look at a, a general and our average landscape or farm, much of it is something not what I just listed. It's not food plots, it's not uh, feeders, it's not minerals. Rolling Bones Outdoors presents Hunt the World. From Montana to Mexico, Alaska to Asia, Colorado to Canada, we hunt the world. Our team at Rolling Bones Outdoors is here to help you create memories that will last a lifetime. Get ready to hunt the world and let's get started. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Hunt the World with Rolling Bones Outdoors. Got our sign up in the front today. Did you see it? I didn't see it. I was out working. It? I was it's out too small. It was supposed to be longer, but I'm not going to put it back. So anyway, oh, um, but it's bad. here. Welcome to the Bone Cave. Um, I'm excited to have everybody today. Uh, didn't mean to give that extra excerpt there right away, but we did get our sign well, up. Just to, to clarify, the new sign on the front of the retail store. Yes, here. I'm sorry. So so, so those of you that are listening for the first time, I should give a little bit more explanation. My name is Brian Maiman. I'm the founder of Rolling Bones. And across the table, as always, is a gentleman by the name of Brad Dana, um, partner and one of the owners of Rolling Bones. And gentleman. You don't call me gentleman usually off air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's because <laughs> off air, you sure usually don't represent or look like a gentleman at all. So anyway. And then to my left, we have Bleep, the world famous Bleep. Um, he makes sure. I had a buddy text me the other day. He goes, I got your podcast figured oh, out. Oh, yeah. And I go, yeah, what's that? And he goes, you and Brad. I just talk about shit okay <laughs> and then bleep makes sure he keeps you between the ditches and then your oh. guests get on and actually add content and then it's been wildly successful and i'm like he, yeah that's kind of it he figured it out that he did how he did fig- he, do he that? figured out pretty smart yeah. guy did you he's, he's did from you bleep out super important stuff or did you bleep out something else you and brad talked about <laughs> bleep Really yeah. important stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need to. We need to put the kind of the bloopers and the stuff we edit out at the end of the show. No. Yeah. Yeah. There's some Maybe. bloopers. So anyway, um, but so we have bleep, and then we have special guests, uh, which I'm super excited about Woo-hoo. today. Um, yeah, we have Matt and Adam with. Um, I want to say this right. Land, Matt, uh, Adam, give it to me because I want to say it right. It's land and legacy. I was going to say, it's Land and Legacy. I knew that, but is it Land and Legacy? It's just Land and Legacy. That's it? Land and Legacy. And they are um, out of the Midwest, and um, I've heard from more than one resource that they are the best in their space at building properties into amazing um, game properties. And and I guess it serves a double-edged sword, and I can't wait to get into this today because having had land in Iowa and, and, and a small farm there, it's super intriguing to me because now I wish I had it back because I'd have you guys go up there and redo the whole thing. But um, I was talking to a guy the other day that knows you guys, and he said that um, not only has his deer herd increased on his property not only does he know how to retain he's retaining more deer on his property he understands the pattern of them better because of what you did but that is all great but the ancillary effect was he has more turkeys 
and small game than he ever thought he would ever have. And it's, it's amazing how many uh, species that his place has all the time on it. And so I can't wait uh, to have you guys share about that. But from Land and Legacy, and you guys build properties all over the, all over the country, really, right? Pretty yeah. much. We've been, been in, was it now, Adam, 31 states? Um, 31, I've got 32 on the books next spring. Where, where are yeah. you guys from? So home for us is in uh, south south uh, Missouri, kind of southwest, south central Missouri. Um, and But we do a lot of our work in much of the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic and, of course, everywhere else in between. But Missouri, so, Iowa, yeah. Illinois, uh, Ohio. Ohio. Yep. Done quite a bit in New York, Pennsylvania. So, so what's before we get started? Just so everybody, because I know we have a lot of people listen to our podcast, and and it, it's like just like everything else. Like I watch TV now. I never watch YouTube without having my Google machine in front of me. So, what is your website? Land www.landlegacy.tv. Okay, so or soybeans are not tools. Our land tools, not food and plots. legacy TV and just it's wildlife and land consulting and um, their tag is land and legacy for the love of the land and they have a really really nice website and I can't wait to hear more about everything but uh, um, it's pretty cool what you guys do and uh, um, first of all how the hell do you get into something like this that you get to go play in the woods all day and pretend you're working and get paid for it Wow. I didn't know that was a job lately. It's felt a lot like keyboards. So I don't, I, I don't know how to get into that job. I'd love to though. Well, I'm, I, I saw your video as well, the sizzle reel, and it looks like you guys just get to go out with chainsaws and shovels and hire people and make cool stuff and then go hunting all the time. So I, I was thinking, you know, our, our audience should understand at least how the hell do you get a job doing what you do? it's yeah. called being blessed yeah. wow that's cool there you go yeah. so on your we, scissor we, reel you guys you guys went in and improved a six it was like 620 acres right so that's We're, a that's kind of a, a neat story adam i'll let you tell that one because that's now transformed that was kind of the the beginning of land and legacy when that was filmed and a lot's kind of happened and transpired since then on that specific piece so I don't want to kind of run down on that story. Okay, but before we go there, how the hell did you get into? Because I don't want our audience going. Well, oh, you finish up yeah, the first I'll, year. I'll share that story. Um, yeah. How the hell? How, how did you boys get into this? So you know, if we dial the clock back several years, Matt and I worked a job together. He was an intern. I was an employee at a another another place um, that did consulting or does some consulting, and. Uh, you know, as, as time went on, that one was really a focus on, on deer and deer hunting. And as, as, as time progressed, we were like, man, I really, I really love kind of the big picture mindset, managing ecosystems rather than, you know, scratching out some food plots and, and trying to kill some deer. And so, you know, I, I love quail and I love turkeys, Matt does as well. And, but we also have backgrounds in cattle and it was kind of like, there's more to this. There's a bigger picture here. And as we began to uh, kind of dissect research and understand other uh, facets of land management, it was kind of like, you know, there's something here. I think there's more people want more than just deer and, and, and food plots. And 
it became a, a kind of a raging passion for us. And then at the same time, as, as our passion grew for it, that we saw that there was a purpose for it in changing landscapes and helping landowners enjoy their property more than just staying out and try to slip in the first week of November to shoot a big buck. And uh, when you combine passion and purpose and then the Lord's blessing on our lives, it was like, look out. We started booking consults and uh, fortunately they hadn't stopped. And, and uh, we've been able to now consult on, oh, roughly probably over 150,000 acres across the country now in 31 states and um, just continue to book places and, and get to work on some really cool places and, and, uh, and help landowners not only enjoy their deer hunting more or see more deer, but uh, most importantly, um, see other species that have kind of fallen to the wayside as most hunters have kind of managed their farm specific for deer and, and then seeing families get involved and, and enjoying the farm as well. It's just, uh, it's been a really, really cool thing uh, for us to experience. And now I guess going on six years. Wow. That's cool. Okay. Now we want to hear the story about this sizzle reel because it is really good. Yeah. You know, when you said that, I was like, I don't know what property he's talking about. There's been a lot of, lot of acres between <laughs> that sizzle reel and today, but that's actually, uh, when we shot that video, it was a, it was a lease of mine, um, that bordered my family farm. So now, um, my brother and I are actually the owners of that property. And, um, and so it's, it's a family farm and then, um, an extension of the family farm that my brother and I purchased, um, who, uh, we basically now have gone through a full, almost a full timber harvest, a bunch of prescribed fire, um, lots and lots of, uh, thinning of timber and wildlife holes or vernal pools, um, you, native grass plantings, rotational grazing. Now there's cows involved in a, in a much more rotational grazing management system. There's now more quail, not a ton, I won't lie to you, but there's now quail in places we'd never seen or heard quail in my whole life. And uh, turkeys seem to be rebounding and, and doing better. And um, so it's, it's changed pretty drastically. So is that hardwoods that you, you said you're on your second timber harvest? Is that hardwoods at Oak or something down there? Oak Hickory is the, is the main, the main, uh, yeah. And so you're on your second timber harvest. How often can you harvest a hardwood like that? Yeah, it's, so it was logged probably in the eighties and then there was some logging that went on. Um, and then they came back in, um, and, and it just kind of at that, at that stage, uh, I think it's not that trees were cut and grown back and then cut again in, right. in 20 years. It's more like uh, there's been staged out areas that have been cut and then more areas. So there's some regen happening at different times, which is more beneficial to to the it, whole ecosystem. It, it's funny you say that because a lot of people, especially out west, you know, um, I grew up in Iowa, obviously, and yeah. then Wisconsin. And uh, um so understanding harvesting trees as a as a crop um, yeah. is something different than they understand out here. You know what I'm saying? Um, right. Because it's 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 pine trees, um, but back there pine and pine. It's pine and we pine. We have pine and spruce, right? You have and 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 they call them and they call them weeds out here. They go, those weeds will yeah. grow right back. You know what I'm saying? Um, good yeah. fire and the weeds will be right back in five to ten years. Well, there's got to be a strategy when it comes to hickory, walnut, oak, um, and elm trees if they didn't get Dutch elm and die all out. But, uh, um, yeah, so maybe you want to explain.
explain a little bit of that because I know we have a big audience from out here that doesn't understand the importance of maturing of hardwood and why harvesting it at a certain time is, uh, I guess, more appropriate than letting it just go to waste. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting point, and I think that's a series that we're going to cover in the future that gets way more in depth. But with timber management, it's very um you we can take that any which way there's a we're standing on a on a hub and there is a spoke that we can go down any way we want and so in long story short especially in the east timber management has once was once too much a lot of timber got cut too hard and not managed correctly in the in the following years after that but now there's a lot of we kind of went from one end of the spectrum to the other where there's a lot of land that's not getting cut now and the healthy forest has all kinds of diversity, including age of those trees or the growth rates of those trees. So you should have young, young forest, young trees, middle-aged trees and older age class trees. And a lot of the forest in, in the Midwest and East and Southern is old um, and choked out. And so we promote active timber management almost everywhere we go to where, if it hasn't been cut in in several years, it probably needs to be thinned or harvested. Um, and that's going to create better habitat for the wildlife. It's going to create a healthier forest because we're going to get that diversity. It's going to create a flush of herbaceous growth within that understory. And uh, the whole ecosystem is going to benefit from that. Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we run across is that a healthy forest is, is left alone. It's, it's preserved. And a healthy forest is conserved, which means that you need to be actively managing it with a wise use of the resource. And so, for example, on the property that we're talking about on the sizzle reel, there's a good red oak um, component to that, to that forest, but there's been some disease come in and um, they just aren't as healthy. So these trees that are 20 inch diameter at breast height a four and a half foot off the ground are hollowing out but they look completely healthy and so all of a sudden a windstorm comes through and a bunch of them fall over and you're like these trees are hollow or are rotten in the middle right and so if we cut them there's a good chance that they will sprout back so we still have that active root system that's going to then grow and be you know let's say a 50 year old uh root system now pushing up new growth that's nutrient rich and is going to have a really good chance of growing quicker than a, an acorn landing on the ground and germinating and then growing at the same rate. So we're able to conserve the red oak component by cutting the red oak component, if that's, that makes sense. That makes total sense. And it's interesting to hear you say that. What would you say your average size, uh, is it 40 acres, is it 80 acres? Um, what would you say your average size property that you guys consult on is? I would... Matt, Matt, I've talked a lot. Why don't you handle that? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to say it's probably around 250 acres. 250 um, acres. It is average, and that can span. And each region, right, has has a different, um, let's say, number that I that I throw up. But let's average all of them together. 250. Most most of these, when you're when you're doing that, and you're having there's there's usually a lot of timber management i bet in most of that eastern stuff and those are usually commercial sales so that's actually not so much an expense probably for for the landowner i i just wrapped up a report today 
And kind of to piggyback on what Adam was saying, and this was right here in about an hour and a half north of where we live at, um, 500 acres and 90% timber. And he had great timber value throughout the whole property. In the process of making his property better by harvesting the timber and improving it for wildlife, wildlife, most are disturbance driven animals. He's going to make a lot of money in this process wow. by harvesting trees. And right. that's cool. like the amount of implementation work that's going to be on the back of other people, the loggers, foresters working on his behalf is going to be incredible. And he's going to get a check to do it. So, right, so on, his consulting fee is being absorbed as a net nothing compared to the return he's going to get on his harvest. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's going he's gonna to be set up very well and, and have a lot of money to put back into the property um, by way of an income from the timber harvest. So you said and, this was 500 and, acres and, and 90% timber? 550, yep. 550. Yeah. So what's going to be the mix um, once the timber harvest is done and, and you guys get done with, you know, after your implementation has been done uncompleted on that ranch? Or farm, I it's, guess. It's, I guess you could you could look at it and say, well, we're going to open up and put in some food plots, but really we might change it from a 90% timber to 80, 85% timber. What we're doing by harvesting portions of timber and at varying degrees and varying intensities is changing the age and the, and the amount of sunlight allowed to basically ge- regenerate young forest and understories across the entire property most of that 90 percent was closed canopy so very little sunlight very little forage and cover on that property to date at the end of it we're not completely opening up this thing and not making it timber it's just going to be varying stages of timber regeneration and amount of trees per acre essentially interesting so they come in they harvest the trees what about the stumps? Do you, I mean, that's got to be something that's addressed on, on, especially like on the food plots, probably the rest of the stuff isn't, but does that on where you want an active food plot, you come in with a stump grinder and grind it, or maybe hire like a Brad and you come in with dynamite. I could do something like that. <laughs> a little more uh, machine driven than, than dynamite, but uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So since we've referenced my farm on that, since a sizzle reel, what we did, we did the timber harvest, but in areas that we wanted to create food plots. And let's just say it's 400-ish acres. And I think when it was all said and done, we might have put in still less than 10 acres of food plots, probably like nine acres. Wow. Uh, in those areas, we, uh, and it was like four different areas that we cleared out. So one acre here, an acre and a half there, maybe three acres there. Um, we had a dozer come in and doze the trees over. So the roots were completely, uh, up out of the ground. And then the logger cut the logs out and the dozer pushed them up in a pile as we burned them. Oh, I gotcha. That's how we did it. And you guys do a lot of prescribed burns. That's a, that's a no, no where we live. There's not that, uh, that uh, you would, uh, you'd have some nasty calls. Well, here. we haven't got to South Dakota a whole lot yet, <laughs> but if we got there, I'm sure that we would be uh, doing our best to bridge the gap on on yeah. using. Well, fire. South South Dakota, the majority of it actually would be just very, very similar to what you you guys have. I, I think a lot less dense timber, but mm-hmm. you know, there's there's just a small chunk in the mountains like where we're at. Yeah. So, yeah. but it's you know it's pretty arid here. It's kind of yeah. a high country desert type thing. 
But mm-hmm. so nine acres, that surprises me. I would think you'd have a lot more. So what are you doing? Mostly clover type stuff then, or, or do you yeah, do a blend? We do a lot of blends um, to kind of talk a little bit about our, our management style. We kind of feel like what we do is replicating uh, nature, repli- replicating the kind of uh, landscape that God intended, which is high diverse, lots of disturbance, um, lots of things going on to where it can provide um, benefit to a lot of different species. So there's species that really depend on the the disturbance, whether it be grazing, whether it be fire, whether it be flooding, and they move in right after those disturbances and they kind of follow them around. While there's other ones that can adapt more to the um, lack of disturbance. So as long as you have this rotation of disturbance throughout a property, you can have all those different species um, and instead of just making it all in one fell swoop, burning your entire property. No, we try to burn portions of it every year, but not all of it every year. Um, and so for us, that's, that's really the goal is to replicate, um, nature with high diverse blends, whether it be in a food plot or in a native planting. Um, and we just try to avoid monocultures the best we can. Wow. And specifically on, on your place, you know, you're, you're really confined to, ridge tops from food plots so you hear 400 acres and there's only nine acres have been cleared out well topography it's very driven by that as well in our region where it's even feasible flat enough to be able to plant and where you want consistent winds and pulling deer too um to be able to hunt effectively so right for us that that's a huge factor so that's a that's unusual that that limited amount nine acres out of 400 you usually i would imagine there's some sort of ratio you're looking for no. not really i mean as a whole you ask us about the average size i'll say something that that is kind of shocking to a lot of people and this is kind of the progression of land and legacy in our education um because much of this that we do it can't be taught or learned at a university um, because you're kind of blending hunting and land management and agriculture all in one. It's not like you can go to a university and say, I'm going to major in land consulting like land and legacy and get the full degree. Um, and so for us, what we kind of look at is when you talk to landowners across the country, the one common thing is almost every single property we go to, and I have to say almost, um, less than 3% or for sure less than 5% of the entire property will be in food plots. So food plots, and you guys are business guys, so you'll, you'll get this. If you just turn land management or farm management into a business and your return on your investment, you can look and see like food plots cost the most or a, a good feeding program where you've got feeders out cost the most. But where do wildlife spend most of their time outside of the food plot? And so you're like, okay. And for us as, a, as growing up, and taking much of the content that was out there in the education through magazine articles, land management or deer management was food plots and feeders and minerals and um, pretty much that. There wasn't a whole lot or fruit trees. But when you look at a, a general and our average landscape or farm, much of it is something not what I just listed. It's not food plots. It's not 
uh, feeders. It's not minerals. It's it's trees. It's grasslands. It's woodlands. It's well, savannas. And I'm sure there's an bottom. and I'm sure there's an element that it's also the neighbor's property, um, uh, the contiguous properties, water drainages. There, there's got to be a lot of runoff issues. I mean, you know, you're talking eastern property, so. It, there's got to be a lot of that involved in it too. You can't just look at the 40 acres or the 200 acres or the 2000 and say, okay, this is what we do every time. Right? No, 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 not at all. But there's some general trends of most people don't manage their timber and a lot of our properties are timber. And if you compare one farm to the next and say, well, how do I compete with my neighbor? Well, he's probably doing food plots. He may be doing feeders and he may be doing minerals. He's probably not doing timber management and burning, and that's where we come in. So what I think that's important to, to note too, just because the term says food plot, that doesn't mean that that's the only place that deer are feeding or turkeys are feeding. When we're managing timber, it's producing a lot of a lot of value from a foraging standpoint. So for instance, go back to the property that I was just talking about. It was closed canopy. That's going to produce about 50 to 100 pounds of food per acre. If you go in and you clear cut that same acre, so you cut it, you remove the trees, you allow regeneration, the seed bank to express itself, those trees to come back, sprouts. Now you've gone up to 1,000 pounds of food per acre on that exact same acre just by cutting the trees from a deer standpoint. That's deer food. Per year, how much is produced? Well, it's funny. So, it's funny you say that. We had a piece of property in northern Wisconsin, and they slashed the neighbors, and they and they came in and took a little bit of ours too on some poplar, and they cl- yeah. literally took it down, just clear cut the stink out of. It was like 15 acres on my place, but it was 70 acres on the neighbors, and there were more deer in that than there were um, in the corn. They yeah. were just loaded in there for two years. Yeah. Clear cuts are always really good up here. You know, you get a lot of elk and a lot of deer roaming around in those. So so much sunlight gets in there. It seems like sunlight, forage, cover, security, you name it, it's there. And that's just the natural response, right? There, although there's only nine acres or X percent of, let's say, food plots, supplemented food on Adam's place, there is food across all 450 acres of the property bar none so do you augment that with grass seed and stuff natural grass seed or does it just take over it just does its own thing it's already there yeah it's the beauty on my farm and in many farms you know if if it's timber a lot of times the the seed is already there but if it's been corn for years and years you may have to add it yeah um for me you know you just cut it and let the let the sunshine in and stuff starts growing so you guys said a couple hundred acres is your average. What do you what do you get for smaller chunks? I mean, a guy a guy's got twenty yeah, acres. Acre, that was my forty acres. Too. You know, my neighbor just my neighbor's got twenty acres, and I swear he just put a food plot in for his bees of clover. Well, when he said he was putting clover in, I'm like, sweet, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have five acres of alfalfa right beside me. Well, he put some bee clover in. You know that the, it, it, it barely it, took. Barely took. It, I was like, "Oh, dude, you, you just needed to see that with like alfalfa." Hell. It looks sick. The, the, it, it, it does. It, like, it, like you'd you'd look at it and go, "Yeah, God did not want a food plot there." But it's like his little food plot's twenty by thirty, and he'll have thirty-five deer standing every in it night. At night. It's just loaded. <laughs> it's like it's lo- that's I mean, why it looks so bad. They're eating it all. Well, no, it looked that <laughs> bad. It, listen, it, Matt, Matt, Matt. I'm telling you, it looked that daggum bad before. So. 
the deer are the deer are up high in the summer, right? As soon as they oh. just follow that green up as as the snow melts and whatever. So there's sure. a big chunk of time here where we don't we're not just covered up in in animals, right? So I was like, when I saw it coming in, I was like, ooh, that whatever he put. So let me be more poignant with the question. Because so I own forty acres. I own forty-eight acres in Iowa. The neighbor has eighty-seven acres, hard timber. Um, I have a little open CRP piece on it, about eight nine acres. I got a creek that runs through it. The rest of it is hardwoods and dense forest and old um, fence lines that have ran through it and around the edges of it. Is that forty acres worthy of me calling you and having you come in and look at? Oh, for sure. Yeah. One of yeah. the best farms and we why? ever and, and why? Was. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, one of the best farms Matt and I ever worked, as far as inches of antler to be drug out of there, um, was a 24-acre piece. That honestly, when Matt and I walked away, um, we were like, "Ee, that one's a little rough." Um, I would not place it as my prize-winning pig by any means. And uh, in in the course of a year and a half, he shot two deer right around uh right around 170 in the mid and uh mid 60s and then he shot another one that's right around 140 so it was like you know a 168 a 171 and then a 141 <laughs> on 24 acres with wow. the, the weirdest looking food plots but what he did was just make the place thick so I think many times when I was growing up and I was consuming outdoor content, especially from the hunting world, like, what do I got to do for big bucks? It was food plots and feeders and all that stuff. And over time, I realized, yeah, that that covers the food basis, but that doesn't answer the bedding basis. That doesn't, when I look at a, a, a 24 hour day and I break that up into daylight and dark, during dark is where they feed the most. And during day is when they bed down the most. Well, oddly enough, that's, that's legal shooting hours is during the day. So why don't I focus on the bedding rather than the food so much? I had to change the priorities. When we did that, it was like, oh, now the deer are daylighting on us. We're getting daylight pictures. So if you have 40 acres or 30 acres, you really focus in on, I don't, yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to control that deer on my place 24 hours a day, but at least I can try to control him when he's bedded down during the day. So when he stands up, he, the, those last few minutes of light, he's going to be standing up on me. So going in and try to create those dense pockets um, of bedding so he feels com comfortable, he feels secure, and he knows that he's not being pressured, that's when you can turn a small property into the best property in, the, in, in that neighborhood. So it's not about owning the 2,000 acres. It's about owning the right 20 or the right 30. And doing the right practices – in relation to the rest of the neighborhood, really, really evaluating what, what are the other farms like? What are they really lacking? And, and basically addressing the, the needs of those on your property. And you're going to do a lot better than they are because you've addressed the, basically the lowest holes in the bucket um, in that general neighborhood, if you're working on a smaller track. Um, but I, I really go to, like Adam said, cover, 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 uh, I want to own that if I have a smaller track. So um, sometimes, yeah, you, you've got a property that's got a lot of open ground. You can pack it in with quite a bit of food, and that's a big draw. But when you have small acreage, and you can be the cover, and you can own the deer. It's that so, simple. So, so, if I'm hearing, so if I'm hearing you right, if I'm hearing you right, 
I shouldn't be afraid to call you. I should say, yeah, I got 40 acres, um, and these these guys, Landon Legacy, can help me based on all of my geographical area say, what do I have to do to have the deer on me when they're on the feet? Yes. That's right. So a lot of times this is probably a three- to seven-year project, or, or what's what's average? <sighs> It can depend on the current, let's say, habitat, how yeah. how much work really needs to get done. Obviously, the bigger projects, we, we schedule out work and give kind of a schedule um, to, to accomplish things. It could be a 10-year project, but obviously, we prioritize the best and biggest returns on the front end of that schedule. So a lot of times, people are seeing really good returns in you know year two and three and four, it's it's pretty lights out. Yeah, for us, it's you you got to pick the low hanging fruit first, and so and you want landowners to see a quick turnaround and see results, so they get ambitious for the next step and the next rung of the ladder when they're moving forward. And so we do a lot of uh, we just call them bedding thickets, where it's like okay, first and foremost, let's do heavy lifting on a very small percentage of the timber. Let's go in and do some micro clear cuts, uh, temporary forest openings, and they do those and they start monitoring them through hunting and material cameras. And after they see, if they're in a landscape that doesn't have much dense cover, they do those. They're like, where can I do more? I am all in on what you guys are talking. Let's do it. And so then you move into more TSI, uh, prescribed fire and things like that. So if, I'm, so if I'm understanding you right, you literally come in and you put some type of analysis together and you have a tiered plan with a timed result for someone to look at on the property and and you put them a uh, an analysis together a plan and then walk through it with them and then how involved are they on that and how involved are you? is that right number one is that how it works and then number two how involved are they and and how much of that do you do yeah for for us we we basically have to do an on-site evaluation right mm -hmm. we come and walk the property and so most of our options only include that then from there <clears throat> the biggest option will definitely have a written report for that property it gives you a timetable of all the practices the recommendations and then provides you a custom map or four custom maps actually for the property to guide you through give you the visual the written like the why behind it and then how and when to do it um, and so that's kind of the, the general consulting package. And then there is, if you want more assistance and a follow-up situation, we can do more retainer work and follow-up visits to help um, kind of fast track that progress afterwards and, and assist in the implementation from hiring contractors and do a kind of like a general contractor on the work. Um, but that's just up to the client and what they want to do. But essentially, the package that we have are on-site visits and detailed work to show exactly when, how, and where to do the techniques that we recommend. I like it. When, what, and why. When to yep. do it, what to do it for, and why, why you're doing it. That's really good. So, um, because that, that, we have a lot of – we have a lot of I'm, – I'm just thinking of our buddies in Muscatine. I'm thinking of our buddies in Alamakee County. I'm thinking – you know what I'm saying? Um, we have a lot of guys the along the, the, the river, right, the Mississippi, the Cooley Mountain Range on the Iowa side. We have a lot of clientele and great 
clients that have 40 acres, 80 acres, 160 acres. And uh, um, I know they're always trying to build big deer and they're always working on it, you know? Um, so it's, it's, I interesting. work, I work a 160 acre farm in the northeast portion of Iowa, right off the river, probably two miles. We talked the other and, day when you were heading up there, didn't we? Yep. Yep. And um, that farm, I'd have to go back and, and look specifically, but they hadn't done any timber management and came in, did clear cuts, did um, additional thinning, did a walnut harvest, and are now coming back and doing some more thinning. Uh, but in the last couple of years, I think they've harvested five five to six bucks off that 160 acres, four and a half and older, 140 inches all the way up to 180 inches on that one 160 in that region. So it doesn't take a giant piece to make it work. It just takes the right pieces on that property. And, and, and genetically, that's a real tough area to raise big deer. Uh, no, I'm teasing. That's a joke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh I suppose there's some fertilization. Oh, sorry. I was chewing on Brian's spicy hot jerky that he brought in here. Woes, wowzers. Um, so you got, you got, you're going to have some fertilization costs. You're going to have some food plot. What's the, what's the biggest hurdle for something like this if you got a piece of property? Change Ooh. in mindset. Um, you know, I, I love the phrase that says, if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. And for a lot of landowners that we work with, seeing down timber or seeing a logging operation or seeing trees fall for the sake of just a, the tree it's standing next to probably is one of the biggest hurdles that I run into. Everybody's all on board on dozing trees to make food plots. But not everyone's on board with just cutting trees for grass or uh, Great density. grow on the forest floor right where that one was standing. Well, it's funny because where we live, we have a mature ponderosa pine monoculture forest. Uh -huh. And there's these little things called uh, bugs that got into them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Did the <laughs> pine beetle devastate? And, you know, I mean, it was... It was kind of set up. And well, it, it was the Western oh, pine beetle, yeah. and then now it's that Ipset uh, um, little Ipset beetle, yeah. and th they're they're more aggressive than the Western pine beetle because they work from top down, and you don't even know they're there. So all of a sudden, the tree's dead halfway down. You look, and it's it's just uh, yeah, I'm dealing with it on my property right now like crazy. Yeah, we figured out that was the donut toxin. Remember, <laughs> yeah, exactly. donut make your brown eyes blue. Same with the wood. <laughs> no, that yeah. comes from the western pine beetle <laughs> see this is why guys this is why tonight you should pray for me because i have to put up with this id10t all the time so anyway that wasn't even funny uh, it was, it was pretty him. funny yeah. Yeah, it wasn't the ipsic beetle it's it's the mountain pine beetle that does that the donut toxin yeah <laughs> oh wow he just laughs at himself so you guys don't you don't even have to get it it's okay it's so okay. yeah you see, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just passed that. <laughs> so my my one so of my what's, buddies. Hold on one. So what's your favorite part of doing what? What Matt? What would be your favorite part of what you do? What What's the favorite thing you love about what you do? And then I'd love to hear the same thing from you, Adam. My favorite part is going in and traveling to see the different regions across the country and the natural resources and the systems, the ecosystems that are out there. 
and having the ability to to manage them. Um, so there's a really cool farm that we work in um, southern Florida. And then there's really cool stuff in Texas and then East Montana. So just the ability to go out and experience and work and manage these things and, and allow, let's say, the principles that we follow within our business um, and managing land be applicable in all those regions. That's so enjoyable for me. That's yeah, that. I think that's I'm going to piggyback on that because I've got another answer. But that is really what's so cool for with Matt, what Matt said is because of the challenge you think that a Southern Missouri boy or Matt grew up in Virginia, couldn't drop their, couldn't drop our feet in Florida and know what to do. But because of the, the template that we use, the principles that we use, we get down there, we, we know the species. And if there's anything new, we can learn the species, understand the good, the bad, the indifferent and manage. And, uh, and, and honestly, it's like, when I was out west chasing elk, I was sitting there looking at the species, finding the species that the elk loved and going, man, if I own this mountain, this is exactly what I would do to get these elk in here. And uh, I just love the challenge of trying to help improve a property with the native species. Um, but my favorite part of the job is getting the phone call from the landowner who has it's all clicked for him sometimes when you meet a guy he's all about big deer and he only really wants big deer and you're like you know that's fine we're going to do these practices because it is good for big deer but in the meantime prepare yourself you're going to see other species um, you can be excited not excited i'm excited from home a couple of years ago i got a phone call from a a, a landowner in pennsylvania he really wanted big deer. He, he lives in Pennsylvania. He's a logger in Pennsylvania, but he hunts Ohio, but he wants to try to grow some bigger deer in, on his farm. Okay, cool. Went up there toward the place and I told him, hey, you know, this is, uh, this is what you need to be doing. Um, you know, there, there you're going to see all kinds of birds and different things. He was like, I really don't care about anything other than the deer. The next year I did a revisit because he did a huge timber operation on it and he wanted to make sure he was heading in the right direction. And as we're walking around, uh, I said, man, look at the scarlet tanager, which is a little red bird, bright, bright red with black wings. Um, and I, and he's like, uh, yeah, that's cool. And then a little bit later, he stopped me and grabbed me and goes, look, 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 there's two of them right there. And I grabbed his shoulder and I said, Rob, look at you. You're worrying about the Tweety birds now. And he's like, what have you done to me? And now he's all in on managing the farm and seeing all the different critters. And he's still seeing, and he's starting to see more and more big deer and, and kind of making a, 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 reaching his goals. But in the meantime, he's having fun with all the wildlife responding. Well, if That's you cool. remember when I introduced you, I told you I talked to somebody that you've done work for. And yeah. what they told me is not only do I have great deer on my property, but I have turkeys, quail, rabbits squirrels more critter density than i've ever had and he said the damn songbirds and woodpeckers and stuff that you never thought about enjoying when you're sitting on a tree in a tree stand it's yeah. it's it's honestly like i'm in a whole different movie than i was two years ago three years yeah. ago before those guys showed up and the, the property's alive with a lot more than just a buck walking across it and so that that's uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's starting to feel like Pocahontas on that Disney movie where they're landing on you and you're just walking around and 
one with Nike. You do not. Hey, all you listening, he does not look like Pocahontas on the Disney movie. I just want you to know that that beard is not a Pocahontas esque deal there. Okay, Adam. Yeah, but if if you've got if you've raised a daughter, you know that movie. <laughs> yep. What you said though, Brian, was was 100 accurate. Is a lot of the farms that we see, and people don't know it until they've experienced it, is that some some of these farms just really need to be revived. Like they're kind of dead. There's not a lot of things happening. There's not diversity in the landscape and in the plant species that are there. Then of course the wildlife that are there. Um, and then you get in and you do that work. And again, a lot of wildlife are disturbance driven creatures. And then you see that thing, that farm wake up in the spring and it's just this new beast. Like how, how did I miss this? How did I not know that this thing was so dead until I started doing the work and diversifying it. And then it just comes to life. And we've heard those stories like Adam just shared all the time of people just big deer, kind of the, the entrance, the way to get them started, but there's a bigger world out there. And uh, it's cool to be a, a, a part of that and allow them to see that transformation. Hey, Matt, could I ask you real quick? I think I know what you're talking about when you say disturbance driven, but maybe yeah. you could explain that a little better. So when you go and you harvest trees, that's a disturbance. When you go in and you use prescribed fire, that's a disturbance. When there's a big flood, that's a disturbance. So when things happen and change and then it uh, alters the natural resources that are growing uh, or at the rate that they're growing, that's what we're talking about when we're, when we're saying Okay. Disturbance-driven. It's like a clear cut, man. You 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 knock those trees down. Pretty soon, all the elk are coming in. They're they're licking the you know they're chewing on the moss. I mean, it's just it's just yeah. Flooded. So so a dead forest would be one that has very little disturbance over a period of time. Correct. Well, a pine beetle could be a disturbance. Any yep. change to the <laughs> landscape. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Yeah. In my damn yard, a pine beetle is a disturbance. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and in more uh, ways than one. In more ways than one. So I, I got to tell you guys. So growing up in Iowa, you know, um, and uh, uh, I used to make some extra money by cutting the oak tree and splitting them and sell them to the local city folk, right? And yep. so cord of wood, forty bucks, all split. Take it to town, get your forty bucks. Take the girl out on Friday night. It's a great economic lesson for me. So <laughs> fast forward, I get this place out here. I got trees everywhere. It's why I actually buy the house eight, nine years ago. I got all this anonymity. Nobody can see me. And now they start dying. And I'm like, so I had a guy come out, hey, you want to log these trees? He went like 14000 bucks to remove like seven trees. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, no, that's not happening. Uh, you know, I don't care how much success or money I have. I grew up selling wood i can do this so i cut yeah. these trees down and i've split all the wood and the next seven are going to get paid fourteen thousand. but anyway these <laughs> the, next, the next seven you probably call dave i'm gonna have dave take care of me. but i will tell you this it was a little bit more than i could handle because uh um i was like holy smokes this is a lot more work than i remember it to be at 50 at 52 than it was at 18 so 16 you know so anyway, well, that's super cool, guys. Super cool. Well, hey, real quick, um, and before we wrap this up, I just want to say today's episode has been brought to you by Alberta Wolf Hunting. Speaking of ecosystems and managing things, I know a lot of people say, "Hey, why would you kill wolves?" But if you don't um, manage the predators, the pre it's it's like. Uh, uh, 
two days ago, Wyoming, um, those two wrestlers, Grizzly four Bears. days ago, those two wrestlers um, helped each other uh, save each other's lives. A grizzly bear attacked him. And this is the time of year that they are uh, amazingly aggressive and, and predation is absolutely imperative in a lot of these areas. Anyway, this is an eight-day hunt. It can be two-on-one or one-on-one. Um, this is what I would call an old-world Jeremiah Johnson just outside of the Jasper National Forest in Alberta. Beautiful, uh, lots, of, uh, um, lots of wolves, and uh, there's no limit on them, meals lodging included. Um, it is a blind and a heated hunt um, where they're, they're on gut piles, on lakes, and open uh, slashings and clear cuttings. Um, Hunter can shoot as many wolves as he wants. Hunter can also sit for coyotes after they shoot wolves, okay? Two-on-one, meals and logging, shot opportunity 95%. Um, That'd and, be fun. Um, we should go do that. Yep, it, and, and uh, it, it is absolutely um, an amazing opportunity um, for someone who wants a wolf. This would be our highest, uh, I would say, success rate for a wolf. Um, and uh, it runs, let's see, $5,000, meals, lodging included, eight-day hunt. Listen. Eight-day wolf hunt. Eight-day wolf hunt. You can't even go to – Sheridan, Wyoming, check into the Hampton Inn and stay there for eight days and tour the uh, Bighorns for 5000 bucks. I need a ribbon shop to, every night. It, it, well, that's going to cost you a lot more than that. <laughs> so, anyway, um, it, it is a great opportunity. The hunt number on this for you guys, go to the website rollingbones.com and um, just put in RB7391-02. Go to Adventures, click on it. There's a search bar there. It'll have all kinds of animals and species. And we'll link to it in the show notes. That and, seems and like a lot of our wolf hunts are like on a frozen lake or something where they freeze some bait down. Yeah, it's because the yeah. wolves like to get away from stuff yeah. when they're on that. It's the characteristic of them. They're a super smart animal. But anyway, RB7391-02, Alberta Wolf Hunt. So that is your uh, featured hunt of the day. We appreciate it. Land and Legacy. They just go to landandlegacy.com. Do you have an email? Do you want somebody dot to email TV, you? by the way. Oh, dot, dot TV. TV. I'm sorry, yeah. dot TV. Landandlegacy.tv. Is there an email you want them to? Uh, um, or they could link right through our website. Yeah. They? Yeah. That'd be the easiest they, way they to do They sure it. could. No problem. Um, but, uh, um, Matt, Adam, anything else you want to add? Appreciate no? you guys having us on. Yeah, nice talking to you guys. Great job. Hey, Congrats. congratulations on all your success. Thank you very much. You. Appreciate that. It's awesome. I, I honestly, uh, I thought um, that I only knew one person that knew you, but I was mentioning it to a buddy of mine the other day, and he goes, oh, I use them. I know those boys. And I was like, nah. oh, really? Then he called you boys, so you know he's a little older, and uh, he's of fiscal means. And uh, I was laughing at him because he's the one that says I have and he cusses like a sailor. And he says, I have more um, critters than I ever thought I would now. And, was there uh, insert bleep um, there? Um, there was insert a lot of bleeps in the <laughs> conversation. So like, that little place, uh, that place you did in eastern Montana, where was that by? Just out of curiosity as we wrap this up. Sydney. Oh, Sydney. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's not far from us. We're, we're like 33 miles, I think, from the Montana border. So we spend a fair amount of time in eastern Montana. So what, what, was, the, what was the predominant thing you did on that place? Um, big recommendation, a lot of bottomland, and that is yep. smooth brome removal and creation of thickets by dropping cottonwoods and adding shrubs. Um, had a 
big tillable component to it. So um, the food was fine, but we needed way more cover in yeah. that big ensuring line. ensuring the food was always there and they didn't rotate out of uh, production all at the same time. And then also woody browse, you know, it's it, once you get northern United States, late winter is the biggest stress period. So you got to ensure that you're going to you're not losing a lot of deer during the winter period. So it's interesting improving woody browse. Cool. Do Russian olives can uh, are they considered woody brows? Yeah, low quality. Yeah. Low quality, they would, but there's a way better. Red oak's your dogwood, right up there. Uh, dogwood, really? That. that is like red. red, red you say best. red oak? Red osier. Red osier. Oh, red, osier. red osier and dogwoods. Um, because my buddy put in a bunch of Russian olives and I told him, and he put in a bunch of cedar trees and, uh, I'm junipers. And I told him that that will cut, that will collect birds and snow like nobody's business. And it will hold a lot of critters, rabbits, raccoons, skunks. Um, uh, but, uh, anyway, that, buddy, yeah, that, that, that was, buddy's that funny one that thought he's funny through the podcast. Yeah. I've, I've planted a whole bunch of trees, but I've lost a whole bunch of trees on my place. You know, I put I started doing that when it was uh, we hit a two year drought cycle. Yeah, perfect timing. Gotta love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, red osier, I'm gonna look that one up. Does that grow in the north up where we're at? Pretty good. Yeah, it, it, you'll find it in bottomland. Wet, it likes wet feet. The dogwood, the dogwood would grow where you're at. Yeah, I, you know, I would think. But we should. We should. Uh, well, these guys are going to come out and see the location. Yeah. We're going to spend more time together anyway. They'll come up and yeah. they'll they'll tell you what to plant, and then we'll get a bunch of kids up there to plant. Yeah, I've got a I've got <laughs> a forty acre farm beside me that thinks they're a four thousand acre farm. So That's I might put some trees in there. So anyway, <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much. And again, before we go, I really appreciate everybody joining us today. Thanks for tuning in. Head on over to RollingBones.com. Check out our membership. Um, we have a one-of-a-type uh, outdoor membership for all of you in the outdoor industry. We are an inclusive club, not an exclusive club. And we want to help you with your next adventure. We also want to help you with your application services. We have uh, um, our most common and popular memberships, $150 a year, and that's unlimited states, unlimited species. We'll make sure you never miss another deadline again. Accumulate those points and uh, you go hunting. If you have young kids, I encourage you, we are a must, because we'll involve your uh, minor kids in that membership also. We want you to take kids hunting, and we want you to get them in the great outdoors, and so we will do their applications for you for that $150 also, and get them their points. I know, Brad, your kids have a bunch of points. Yep. My kids have a bunch of points, and now I have a son that, uh, before I knew it, it's 25 years old, running his own business, and he said, Dad, I'd like to draw an elk tag, and I said, you have eight points in Wyoming where would you like to go hunting and so he's like are you kidding me and so um, right. it's it's an amazing gift you can give a young child and uh, we would love to help you strategize for you and your family so going over to rollingbones.com and uh, we're ready to help you make your next adventure the best one ever and uh, plug into Land and Legacy they have their own podcast you got to go to their website it's one of the most popular podcasts I was just told the other day it's in the top 20 of outdoor podcasts in all of the outdoor industry right wow. now. And uh, so congratulations yeah. to you guys on that, awesome, too. awesome, guys. Um, amazing, amazing. Thank you for being on. And until next time, stay safe, be healthy, and happy hunting.